Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM, let's create. I'm Sam Fragoso, and uh, usually this is the part where I introduce this week's guest, but uh, I'm just going to come out and say it. We didn't record an episode for this week, in large part because uh, today, if you're listening on September 9th, is my birthday. And it's not like I did anything wild for my birthday. I, I went up north and visited family and saw my grandmother uh it's been it has been as um calm and collected and vaguely uneventful as you can imagine but anyway it just didn't happen for a variety of reasons uh we made another short film last weekend um i promise that anyone who wants to watch these will be able to uh by the end of this year or uh at least by 2019 it's a long process making a movie So what you're about to hear instead of uh, a standard interview is a collection of clips that uh, I really, really like from the show's history. I took excerpts from uh, the last two years of the show. I think it ended up being around 11 or 12 interviews. And uh, if you've heard these episodes before, or if you've never heard them at all, I think you will find something of value in the tidbits that I selected in combing through the show's history, which I have done over the past few days. Uh, there's a few things I've noticed that I that I kind of wanted to note. One, in the beginning interviews, I really did not know how to shut the hell up. I just <laughs> this is something a guest would talk, and then I would talk over them, and uh, I don't know what I was thinking. And I, you know, 
like you know you get better the more you do this but that's something i noticed second thing um i talk about mortality and my fear of death to a degree that i think is uh deeply deeply unhealthy and i hope uh in my next year of life of being a 24 year old person that i calm the fuck down with all the the fear of death that you know it's probably far away and at a certain point you just sound like a boring woody allen movie something else i asked a lot of people about how they remain so positive in a world that i perceive as um i don't know gloomy and dark and melancholic i love the answers that i am given and uh, many of those sort of sage pieces of advice are included in the episode so without further ado i want to thank you all for uh, listening to the show as long as many of you have if you just started listening welcome this is not what uh, a normal episode sounds like but i think you'll enjoy this and uh i promise in the coming weeks and months the show will go back to normal we have folks like judy greer kamasi washington laura dern nathaniel rich angela trimber and many more coming on and uh anyway i'm gonna go celebrate by heading back home to los angeles now and I'm going to try my best to not have a sad birthday. I will I will be honest with you, um, whoever's listening, that I have found my birthday to be an incredibly depressing day for the past um, seven or eight years, I think. I don't, I don't know why. I can't quite pinpoint it. But hey, we're here, and uh, I appreciate each and every one of you that has spent time listening to this podcast and uh, giving their time and energy to it. I know it is not always easy, and I know it can be pretty draining at times, as you're about to hear. So I promise to do at least uh, a few funnier episodes. Maybe we get some comedians on. I don't know what we have to do for this to be uh, a little funnier. But look, sometimes shit gets somber. Sometimes shit gets real. Sometimes two people sit in a room and uh, just don't want to lie to each other. So uh, on that upbeat note, <laughs> um, we'll kick things off with the one and only Alan Alda. ask you something that is purely out of genuine curiosity yeah i i, I don't know you I mean, you don't know me we're ostensibly two strangers on the telephone for the last hour <laughs> doing our best to amuse one another is are you going to ask me out yeah actually could i have your phone number i'll, I'll write you for a date sometime um <laughs> <laughs> So go ahead. What's the we're strangers? Yes, and my genuine question is: uh, in this hour, question for question, answer for answer, I've been struck by how goddamn positive you are. So, what wh- what are you curious about? I'm curious h- how 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 did how do how do you get to that place in your life? I don't know. I I have no idea. I. I am pretty positive 
it doesn't mean I don't get low and I have been depressed uh, at times, anxious. So those things aren't very positive. But maybe because I know if I'm not positive and work really hard to stay on the on top of things, I'll be under them. Mm. So I have a... You know, I got through those nine years not working as an actor just with blind survival. I just was going to survive. I once was, when I was 12, I was with my parents at a hotel in La Jolla, California, and they were asleep, and I went down to the beach to swim. It was a little cove, and there was nobody there but me. And I didn't know there was, I didn't know what an undertow was or a riptide or whatever it was I got caught in. And the ocean pulled me out from the shore and then I was underwater the whole time. Then it would, a wave would pick me up and slam me on the shore. And I thought it was fun. And then it would pull me out again and slam me on the shore. And then I thought, well, okay, this has been fun, but now I'm getting tired. I'm going to get out now. And I couldn't. Every time I tried to get out, the water would pull me back. The ocean would pull me back and slam me hard on the shore. And then I thought, if I don't do something, I'm going to die here. This is going to drown me. And I started digging my fingers into the sand and pulling myself with my fingers up the beach took several minutes before the ocean couldn't pull me back in again. Maybe I got something out of that experience, or maybe I had something about me that enabled me to survive that experience and all the ones that come along since then. But that's how I approach it now. I just dig my fingers in and pull myself out of it. Mm. So I hope I hope that keeps working. I have uh, a feeling that it will. That would be nice, but you never know what's coming. That's that's I I, I came up with a a way to say that. You, I think you can't fight uncertainty. You, uncertainty is going to be your your meal at every meal time and in between. Unwanted snacks of uncertainty. You never know what's going to happen, but all you can do is surf uncertainty. And if surfing it can be, you know, the, the fun of surfing, the, the danger, the pleasure of making it without cracking your head open, you might as well make it a good game because it's going to happen. That's what I think. That's how mostly I get through. Well, that, that's about as much as we can do. confident and you seem so self-assured about like everything in your life and it's uh it's impressive it's 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 i don't understand it (laughs) i think it's incredible where does that come from you know what interestingly enough i think it comes from her though you know it's like uh even when shit is bad you can't read it on her face (laughs) now that could be deemed not the best thing uh but that's what i witnessed you know and 
also, I think, you know, my grandmother, you know, who is a person, particularly speaking about my mother's mom, who literally <laughs> left the South because she's from Arkansas and was not, it was not a fun time to be a black girl in the South at her, when the time she was a teenager. She's like, she literally got married to get the fuck out of the South. Like mm-hmm. when she was too young, her, her, my, my great grandmother had to sign her marriage like license to approve it, to approve the marriage because she was like I'm getting the fuck out of here and I'm going to Chicago, <laughs> and um and that's where she went and she stayed and she traveled and she was like this like fly person that even though she had kids she was like I'm not about to stay in this house she's like y'all know how to iron y'all know how to cook figure it out I'll be back you know and so I do think I come from a line of women that rise like the phoenix no matter what the scenario is. So I think being raised by the, you know, that's the thing too. I, I think because the, you know, God would have it that I would be raised in the house with my grandmother, which is the same house my mother was raised in uh, and be raised in that village of people. Also too, I, I was raised in a neighborhood where a black, you know, the the house across the street that I, from us had a little a stick left by a burning cross because the family across street was the first black family to move to that neighborhood. And so, but when I was there, it was an all black neighborhood. So it's like, then those were the people, and those are my neighbors, the Watsons. I won't forget them, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's the community I grew up in. So I just kind of, I think it's more so, it's more stemmed from, you know, from the people I was around and from from whence I came, you know? And I think there's also a thing, I'm very much connected to my history. You know, I haven't done the whole ancestry.com thing. I don't know what part of Africa my, my, my ancestors were kidnapped from. But I'm. It, it's not lost on me that I am a descendant of people that survived the Middle Passage. It's like this shit, that I go through or deal with or that people throw at me, it ain't as bad as that. It's not as bad as slavery. (laughs) It's not as bad as Jim Crow. Not as bad as the civil rights movement. So that's where I come from. That's the bloodline that I'm from. How can I not walk tall? Like I, I have to just as a, as a salute to them. I feel like they deserve at least that. That if they have to go through all that, that like, I shouldn't, when I walk, I shouldn't bow. That's a good answer. And what about God? (sighs) Well, without him, there is no, there is no me. It's like they, there is like, I believe that <clears throat> my steps are ordered. I remember always hearing that, you know, when I did go to church, I listened, I'll say, you know, my mom tried to, she was a little sporadic with it, but uh, she, 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 she got us there when she could. Um, but I did take, I took in a lot and I know she would probably be happy to hear that, you know, if she ever listens to this podcast, although I don't, don't think she knows how all that works, but that's what I remember is that my steps are ordered. Even when I feel like I don't like where I'm walking or what I'm walking through, there's a reason why I'm walking through it. There's a reason why he would have me be on the path that I'm on. And also a thing I remember where there's no vision, the people perish. Like I remember listening to that. And also we would get like 
sometimes my mom would buy cassette tapes of like the sermons and I would listen to them in my room on headphones. Like again, again, there was a particular pastor that I really liked. Um, his name was Winston, Reverend Winston Johnson. And um, I remember he, that was one of his favorite passages where there is no vision, the people perish. And so I would always say it to myself again and again, where there is no vision, the people perish. And it's, and so for me, I've always had a vision because I always think of without a vision, you know, I, I can't, I can't survive. And so I try to visualize where I see myself and what I want things to look like. Seriously, I was on the phone with somebody today. They're like, okay, Lena, if you say that's how it's going to be, I'm like, yeah, that, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. This going to go this way. I'm going to do this, this, and that. If this mm -hmm. goes this way, I'm going to do this, this, and that. And they're like, okay, all right. So it's like, if you say so, I'm it's like. It's not a, oh, I'd like to do this, or maybe, maybe, maybe we should do this. It's a, <laughs> we're doing it this way. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a gift and a curse. Um, but Oh, I'm sure you're a pain in the ass. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Just go ask the agents at WME. But yeah, it's You're like, Spielberg in the making. Look, yo, please, Lord, from your lips to God's ears. Um, <laughs> love him. Uh, but uh, Let's not get into that. I know, right? We don't need you in trouble. Okay. But I do love him. What do the next 10 years of your life look like? Just trying trying to be an example. Um, trying to be the best, the best at everything, as far as being the best friend, the best spouse, the best dad, the best teacher. And then when I retire, I want to still do what I do as far as helping people and 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 just being a part of this of this whole grand scheme of things because right now i mean this world is so so messed up you know i mean we we we've lost our souls to a certain degree and i just you know if i could just be that that drop in that ocean that makes a difference to a lot of people and then that, could, that that's great you know i think about you know when you die i mean i think a lot of old people have a lot of resentment because they have or they they're very like like very mad or angry or that angry old man kind of guy because they have all these resentments of things that they didn't do. And I'm not just talking about traveling. I'm talking about just being being a human. And and then by the time you're 70 or 80, you you get it like, "Oh shit, I I should have I should have helped out. I should have been a part of these people's lives." I I really love the movie. It's a wonderful life. And I, I don't have to be that character to realize that I've had a really good life. And I know that I've changed a lot of people's lives. And, but I know that I, I, it's going to be easier for me to walk away from teaching because I'll always have those memories. But I, always have, but I have something else to do. And it's, it's going to be fine because I know how, how to give without asking for anything. Because I know that God or whatever force you know you want to get into is is gonna is gonna is gonna help me or guide me in in the, in the right direction. I had an epiphany this morning at this table. Go ahead. Working with a writer had. One reaction to a number of pages he wrote, 
totally 180 degrees removed from my young associate whom you met, Brent Miller. And in talking to the three of us on the phone with the writer who's in New York, I, I thought they were much younger than I and wrong. And uh, they didn't understand what I was looking for. And learned, and it's just too long a story to go through to, ex to ex thoroughly explain, but I learned that as a result of who I am and what I thought I knew, what not what I thought I knew, what I knew, I hadn't been open to something that they knew mm. as younger men having approached this generation from differently from the way I approached it. And, and that's why I didn't understand some of what they were talking about or what the work that had already been done. Mm. And epiphany was the word that Brent used. My, that was a real epiphany you had. I, it couldn't have been bigger. I wasn't aware that as that trapped in my generation, there are some things I don't, it's hard to say I don't understand. It's more than that. I don't even see mm. to approach it. It, a, yeah, it's out of it's out of sight. It's out of it's out of like clear yeah. vision. Yeah, but you've always had a knack for at least trying to understand people. Oh, I don't want that to stop. <laughs> no, no, and and in fact, if you don't mind, we're gonna. You mind listening to something? Go ahead for a second. Is some understanding that uh, uh, that traditional American values uh, of freedom of speech and expression of uh, religious tolerance, of uh, that spirit of liberty that Learned Hand talked about, uh, wherein we view the other fellow's uh, point of view uh, with the same kind of uh, understanding and appreciation with which we'd like our point of view viewed, that these values are worth holding on to, and we mustn't be divided uh, at a time when we are simply anxious, frustrated, and people are offering us these simple answers to complex problems. That's me, isn't it? That is. My voice is different. Well, you were, that was 1982, Norman. Wow. Things have changed. And yet, <laughs> simple answers to complex problems. No, that's my... I recognize the thinking. But I can't get over the difference in the sound. <laughs> 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 but uh, I could have said that yesterday. Sure. I bring that quote up because... That's a quote about listening and understanding mm -hmm. people. You said that in 1982. That's, you know, it's been two and a half decades. Do you think we're not as inclined to understand each other? <laughs> you asked me that this day after this weekend, after this, how many weeks of this presidency, my God, how, how, and, and, and with the race issue where it is at this moment, how, lacking in understanding of each other we are. How totally lacking of understanding. Makes you wonder if there are periods when we drift away from each other. But from a race standpoint, this is the most difficult time. And we are far apart. Does that sadden you? It saddens me. It saddens me deeply, deeply. And it makes me understand how much more, any of us. I, mean, I think about always about how much more I can do. You know, <laughs> I think often, wait a second, Norman, you've never been arrested. 
And who was it just the other day, somebody I admire so much, was talking about, or I had read about how often he was arrested. <laughs> Harry Belafonte, maybe. Uh, I've yet to be arrested. So I'm going to conclude this interview and go get arrested. <laughs> Norman, I have uh, one last thing before we go. Yeah. It's funny that you mention the idea of what you have done. Because when someone reads a list of your accomplishment, it takes a few days to go through your CV. This is not complimentary. This is just a fact. This is just, this is just facts. I don't want to flatter you any more than I okay. perhaps have. You seem to be reluctant to take any compliments. I accept. <laughs> At 95, you think you've made a difference? Yes, I think I made a difference. I'm told all the time I made a difference. I read all the time I made a difference. I know that's what you read and what you're told. But when you go home, you're trying to fall asleep. And you're thinking perhaps in your inner monologue about yourself or about your life. Perhaps you don't do that often, but perhaps you have. I said this a long time ago, a very long time ago, when I was first asked, do I think all in the family makes a difference? or is making a difference. If a couple of thousand years of the Judeo-Christian ethic has resulted in being where we are, and we can't see that it's made that much of a difference, what kind of a fool would I be to think my half-hour situation comedy made a difference? So basically that's where I wind up. Yes, I made a difference, but go find it. <laughs> <laughs> How do you respond to losing money twice? Going forward in life, I'd rather hit the bottom than like just halfway because I hit the bottom. So I sort of came out the other side. What, the day what, we found out the money, we lost money, we were at RECSE New Jersey checking our cameras, thinking that. And then we got a call, shit. no money. Went back to Bushwick. Me and my DP were a couple. You know, we're living in Bushwick. And went home, it was broken into. Everything was stolen. All my our computers, drives, camera, like my own camera, sound, and even some of the footage we shot that spring, it was like footage on Pine Ridge I was going to use, some green screen stuff we did for part of the film, for like a commercial on TV. All gone. And... I just, you know, I'm sitting there and then the cops came. They don't even care because it's like, yeah, you deserve a gentrifying the community in Bush. No, they just didn't care. It just happens so often, you know. Right. Um, and we just sat there in the apartment that night. We don't even have, other than our phones, we had no even laptops. So it was like, you know what? Fuck this. You know, just like, I can't call the producers like, do you guys still want to do this? Let's just do it. I have this much grand money left we need this we just need to raise forty thousand dollars then we can do this and then RECSE you know bless them saw all that you know us me crying in the parking lot so they gave us the camera for almost nothing which was only reason why it was possible to make the film oh. the camera lenses monitor everything yeah. I mean when you're in your apartment 
and you see that you have nothing left. Mm-hmm. Is there a part of you that thinks, I, I just can't move forward? Well, in that moment, there is a community on the reservation I already built up. So I have that, right? And then I have team members who is going to come, a couple of them is going to come along to do this with me. If I didn't have those, then I would probably give up. But I know going back there with these group, small group of people, I have access to so much. I can do something. Right. And and all the footage and all the the equipment lost, I mean... I just, I'm like stunned that you could uh, keep going forward without having like a breakdown. Well, I broke down <laughs> many times, uh, but then you, you wake up the next morning. It's just I don't have another reality at that time. I was so immersed in making these films. I, it's hard to explain. I did not have, I have not re- texted my mother back. I don't have a, my best friend in New York is like, trying it's like it's over the friendships are because you never talked to us and it was extreme so when your whole reality is moved to this place called pine ridge reservation in south dakota and and you you know you're there to make a film you just have to do it because otherwise like you have to start over your life You don't look for allies now because you think you wouldn't find them? I don't know. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I was in the green room for the writers here, and a writer came up to me, and she and she's younger, and she said, uh, you know, thank you, for, thank you for being here all these years. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, she goes, well, look in this room, this green room. I mean, I bet when you started, you were the only brown person in the room, weren't you? And and I said, you know, 20 years ago, 22 years ago, I was almost always the only brown person in the room. And now, you know, things have changed. Now half the people in the room are brown. But I used to be alone, and I've never, I mean, I'm going to start. I've never had another writer acknowledge that. I mean, it was... I mean, what just happened an hour and a half ago was, you know, I, I'm, I haven't had time to think about it. And now I'm thinking about it. It's really a, one of the most important moments in my literary career is being seen and being recognized and the accumulated weight. I mean, we started talking about loneliness when we started, right? Yeah. I mean, the loneliness of being the only brown person in the room. Uh and even when there's a lot of brown people, you're almost always the only Native American. Right. The only one. And this woman, this black woman, saw me. Uh, and it's been really hard uh, the last few years as cultural changes inside. I mean, I'm, I'm turning 50. And I was teasing you guys before we started talking about, I mean, this new generation of uh, – you know, brown liberals, brown skin liberals, radicals who are amazing and wonderful and I love what they're doing and their energy. But uh, 
I get catch some grief because I'm part of a previous generation. Uh, and other writers like me catch grief huh. because we're older. Uh-huh. And so the generational stuff hurts. And it hurts, I look, it hurts you. Yeah. And seeing, you know, see, I, mean, I see like they create, these, you know, they have these multicultural groups of writers who have banded together as artists and activists. And I mean, and I'm like, I'm, nobody even asked, nobody even asked me to join that because there wasn't, we were fighting for crumbs. Uh, and now there's, they have such power and community and, and visibility. And I'm jealous of the community they get to have. And I get sad when I get judged for not having had what was never available to me. Hmm. How do you get past that? I don't know. Uh, maybe you don't. I think it's probably a function of every community, right? Generational differences. Mm. Uh, and, you know, and there's some old rowdy people. Maybe I'll become even rowdier. I'll become one of those grandpa, grandpa lefties, <laughs> you know, swatting at people with my cane, <laughs> metaphorically and literally. <laughs> you wrote a lot of books before the... Uh... Absolute true diary. Yeah. <laughs> 22 of them. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I'm still more leftist than all of them. So, <laughs> you know, that's the one thing that gets me mad too is the, uh, I'm baffled. I'm baffled by the, you know, they, they're, they're baffled by why I, I, you know, like really Sanders or Clinton to me are interchangeable. Mm. Interchangeable. I mean, I, I bet I could give a. I bet I could right now reel off twenty tweets by Clinton and Sanders, and nobody would be able to tell me who wrote which one. Huh. You wouldn't. Uh, and do you think? Uh, that's not where I was going to go with that, but I like that you went there. Yeah, <laughs> you wouldn't. I would. I would. I the most committed Sanderite. I bet you, I would fool them with Hillary Clinton's tweets. <laughs> They'd go, yeah, Bernie, yeah, Bernie, and then I'd say, well, actually, that was Hillary. Yeah, uh, that could be a test. You could, you could do that. Yeah, and 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 it's not that I'm some big fan of hers. It's just that there's no revolution happening with Bernie Sanders. Hmm. He's an old white multi-term United States senator from Vermont. There is nothing revolutionary about him. You give me a lesbian Latina to vote for, for Democrat, the Democrat nomination, then, then I'll believe your revolution is happening. Hmm. So uh, you give me a single lesbian Latina, not even a married one, because pretty soon married gay people are going to be boring. So, you know, we, we've got about two years of coolness for married gay people, and then they're going to be just as politically boring as us straight married people, uh, which is going to be an awesome moment in, in civil rights history when, when gay marriage is as boring as straight marriage. I don't know if that's ever going to be in history textbooks. Uh, yeah. So, but uh, In 2022, it appeared that it's all boring when you're married. Yes, exactly. Uh, and uh, uh, 
But until then, you know, until then, it's incremental steps. And I think the fervor for revolution is real and beautiful and powerful. And we so want it that we've assigned this dude all this power and all this poetry when he doesn't deserve it. (laughs) He's a standard leftist guy. He's a little more left. Uh, he's not more left than me. You want me to call a guy who's not more left than me revolutionary? No, but Sherman, you're not a senator. You have no <laughs> senatorial aspirations. and, and, and... E- Exactly. Right. The one thing you mentioned uh, was that besides you working hard, you also had good luck. Oh, yeah. And uh, I know we've discussed this in the past, but could you go into the story about how you managed to pay for law school and that and that back end of it where it got particularly hard and you had? Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, well. You know, I had a series of kind of like sad things kind of come about uh, right into my last year of law school. Um, You're 26. Yeah, whatever I was. So boyfriend and I that had been sharing an apartment, it, it got to the place where it really wasn't working. And I took a studio apartment in probably the nastiest, grossest building. I mean, it was just nasty. And, and so I had this really depressing, horrible apartment. But before that, what, why wasn't it working? It, you know, there were a lot of reasons, but, you know, it, it, it wasn't working. And, you know, there's a point where you just can't live with somebody, you know, um, that you're, there isn't a relationship. And so um, I, we actually both, the lease was up or something. He was going to move one place and I was looking for something and I couldn't find a shared arrangement. So I ended up going to get a little studio, which probably was the best, but it was really a nasty studio. Where was it? Oh, it was on Clark Street in an old crappy building. Um, Kind of a cool area. Yeah, this building was gross. But you know what? I knew it was temporary. So I was doing that and I had a job at a at a restaurant that I kind of liked and they laid me off they laid off a bunch of waiters and so I then I was scrambling for work and I was doing some catering and my girlfriend got me a job at a bar she worked at and I hated working in a bar and it just like I was really scrambling for money and it had come to the point where I needed, I owed a little bit yet on my fall tuition, and it was time to enroll in my last semester of school, and I didn't have the money. I just didn't have the money, and I didn't know where I was going to get it. I mean, you know, it's not like I could, I didn't have anybody to ask for it, and I didn't, I really, because I had gotten into that apartment, I I just needed a security deposit and whatnot. I just didn't have any money, and... uh, I, I remember being incredibly upset and depressed about the whole thing. And my mother came into town with a friend of hers, and she said to me, well, I think that you should just take a semester off school, go back to work, and then finish next year. And I'm looking right near the last semester of school, and I just told her, 
I can't do that. You know, if I walk away, I knew that if I walked away, I would never come back and finish. And um, my Aunt Cher, who isn't really our aunt, said to me, you have everything you need. You just need to believe that. And, and then I guess those were good words. But, you know, at that moment, I just was so upset. And I remember working that bartending or bar back job or whatever really late. And I'd come into the ladies' room at school, and I was just exhausted. And I was, I was sobbing. I was in the ladies' bathroom crying. And a professor, Anne Lucine, knocked on the door and she said, what's going on? And it was right before Christmas break. And I just, I, I was super, super embarrassed because I had had her as a teacher contracts. And <clears throat> she knew who I was because she knew I was on, went to school on scholarship and had a grant. And I just said, you know, I can't pay off my fall bill, so I can't register for spring and I don't know where the money's going to come from and I just don't have it. And she said, you know, this isn't going to do. And she had me come to her office, and then she left, and then she took me into the dean. And the dean of the law school sat me down and said, you know, you've worked hard, and we'll figure this out. And he wrote me a check and handed me a check for, like, $1,000, which was a gigantic sum of money for me at that time. And he said the school, the, you know, the, the school would help, would assist me. But, you know, that check was written on that guy's account. Dean Schrager. And I said, I don't need this much. I, I think I only needed like six or $700. If you could imagine not having a source for that amount of money. And he said, I think you should take the rest of the money and go home and see your family for Christmas. And I did. And I'm glad I did because it was the last time I saw my grandmother. She died shortly after that. So, there you are. Leonard Schrager. Kind of amazing. afraid of dying? It's a good question. Certainly is a good question. I have the air problem. I have a prostate problem. I have high blood pressure. I have several threatening conditions. Um, Okay, let me backtrack on threat of dying. Um, I don't know why, but somehow during my 50s and maybe very early 60s, I did have a fear of dying then. It's like a period that I went through. Like, oh, I went through my period of dying, of being afraid of dying 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It was like I thought, my God, my heart could stop any minute. Oh, my God, whatever could happen. Oh, maybe I'll get cancer and then all these things. Well, you were drinking and smoking a lot back then. I was smoking, that's for sure. Uh, I stopped drinking and... 89. I haven't had a drink since 89. It was becoming too much? or Well, I didn't like waking up with a, with a headache. 
I still don't like waking up with a headache. But, but when I was drinking, even a couple of beers at night or red wine, which I used to like with dinner, was enough that I would wake up with a little headache the next day. At the same time that I was giving up smoking, too, I decided that I would like to live the rest of my life uncluttered by his, his little alcohol. And, uh, and, I, and I smoke grass, too. Uncluttered by his little tobacco or grass or alcohol as possible. Mm. So uh, that I like to have a little clearer vision of what, what I'm doing, where I'm going, where I've been, and so forth. So to address the present about dying, I don't know, I don't think about it much. And so many friends have died, and so many friends who have not died either have uh, Alzheimer's or some beginning form of dementia. That like, what do I, what 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 do I have to do with death? What do I have to do with dying? I mean, is it imminent? I don't know. Do I want to live to be ninety six? Do I want to do this? I don't know. You know, my wife is much younger. As you can see, my children, of course, are clearly much younger. So I don't know where where I am on the on the death question. Right. My dad's uh, dictum about religion was somebody asked him if he went to church, he would say, I go to the round church so the devil can't corner me. That's <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. My dad used to say that. I go to the round church so the devil can't corner me. That's kind of the way I feel about death right now. I'm taking the roundabout route to the end so the devil can't corner me so death can't mow me down. My, you know, you know. I mean, I, as far as working, what am I working for at this point? I said, you know, it's not going to change anything for better or worse. I should probably not be working, but I've continued to work because I didn't want the girls, I didn't want my young daughters to see me as their last thought of me as the old guy who sat around with his air tubes unable to do anything, mm. you know. And so I thought... If I can work, nothing is the only one, but I would be shocked to hear that there is another actor my age working with air tubes uh, on a fairly regular basis, still doing movies and television. Right. You know, uh, I think it's kind of unusual. Uh, but I, I think I've continued, though, because I want them to have a, a, a good picture of me. I think it's better for their, everybody's health, everybody's mental health. That dad is still alive and he's still out there, and you know, people are still asking, he's still in demand, people still offer him roles. I think it's all to the good. I think that there's a very, uh, there's a constant evaluation of your own childhood while you're parenting. And there are things that I had always assumed were inevitable, uh, which I have now discovered are choices. So there's a constant excavation of one's own life while you're witnessing another life. Um, it is a strange thing. It's almost daily for me. Right. That I go, oh, that this is different or this is the same. This is similar 
I mean, a lot of it is different genetics. I mean, like children are who they are. It appears to me as they come when they come out of the womb. There are things that you can't shape. There's very little to me. The primary job is to make them safe and to make them feel secure so that they can be who they're supposed to be. But the idea of molding them is like a fantasy. Like they, they seem to me, they, they are who they are. But yeah, I mean, there's, I've just, I'll get, give you one example that I've reflected on, which is um, one difference that I was thinking about in the generations is, you know, my dad and mom operated from a sense of fear. Like that was the guiding principle of their life. It was fear. Um, and I don't mean it to disparage them that I felt it's natural that they were in constant financial trouble and uh, they were in a new land and all this stuff. But, you know, I see that my kids don't have that fear and it is a completely different existence for them. That one principle, I was just thinking about that because, you know, my, my son, when, I, when my son was young, I younger he would walk around and he didn't seem to have this fear of adults that I had. I, and I, to some extent still do, mm. you know, fear of grown-ups. And I wondered whether, I did wonder whether that was part of like his dad being an actor because whenever we went out, people would shake my hand or give me a high five or something. <laughs> and so, you know, like whereas I thought the world was filled with wolves, you know, he sees events. Yeah, he sees fans. <laughs> and it's like a different world filtered through his father. And my world filtered through my father was very dangerous. Mm. But yeah, I, 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 I enjoy, you know, I enjoy taking care of them and I enjoy being dependent upon, you know. Some people don't like that. I do like that even though it can be stressful, I enjoy being dependent upon. And, and I think that's, um, some extent, it's like, it's what makes you suitable to be a parent or not. Do you like, right? do you like having people depend on you? And I like that. What would you say is your guiding principle, if it's not fear? I think that what I like about all of what I do now, professionally, is problem solving. Like, it all comes down to that to me, is, like, every little scene, every scene is like a little Rubik's Cube. And when you can solve it, it's just very pleasurable. And sometimes it's very simple, like, uh, the scene doesn't work, and sometimes you just have to take out a line. That discovery, it makes me so happy. Mm. Um, it's so satisfying. Um, or it can be, you know, the director thought, we should be standing, but one of us should sit, you know, and because <laughs> uh, we were working and, you know, like the, the, the element of surprise is, you know, heightened by the, and all of a sudden the scene works. And I guess that's a fantasy that we get to live out, which is life doesn't have fixes that are usually that easy. You know, you don't get to play with the dialogue and remove a line or go back and change it. And there is something deeply satisfying about that, being able to fix something, mm. um, rearrange something. 
restage it. Um, it's what I often think like is the pleasure of sports. Some people think it's a microcosm of life, and I think it's it's attractive because it is the exact opposite of life. None of us get a trophy at the end of the year and say, you are the best. <laughs> you are the best this year, and we're going to give you a parade. Yeah. You know, but in sports, they hand out a trophy and say, this year, this year, you're the champ. Yeah. And, um, and the and money isn't bad either. And the money's good. But like, but, but we as viewers enjoy the fantasy that there are champions. Right. But really, that's just illusory. There is no champion. And the wrong team often wins just because of matchups. And uh, the, the lesser team can win. But we still say you're the champ. Right. Because them's the rules. Sometimes that's how the cards fall. Yeah. <laughs> the last thing I wanted to ask you, and then if, if this is too silly of a question, you can disregard it. All right. Do you think, now that you're... Too silly. Great. <laughs> um, somehow I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> you know, do you think at, at 45 you are married, you have two kids... So much has happened in your life and your career, professionally and personally. And, and I, I guess I was wondering, looking back on it now, do you think your parents did a good job raising you? Oh, That's a tough question. Um, it's hard to say anything but yes, because to say no is consequences of saying no are so heavy. Um, heavy for you? For everyone involved, you know. Um, I would say yes, with qualifications, but yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I love them, and... It it's it, it's very clear to me that they they did their utmost. I I think I wish they had done things differently um, in a, in a number of areas, but they were who they were, and and I think also having kids has taught me that to some extent. You are not in charge of who you are. Um, I don't know why that's so. It seems like a cosmic joke, but like, I think that's my conclusion: is that you are parented the way you're parented, and your genes are your genes, and then that mix, you arrive at the person you are, and um, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. And so, yeah, I guess to answer your question, I, I'm I'm okay with that. not that there isn't grief and sorrow at the death of my siblings when they happened one after another over many years. But, you know, I probably don't spend a lot of time thinking, oh my God, I'm going to die too. They all did and I will. Yeah, I do think that's the case as far as I know. But I'm not grappling. I feel like I'm not grappling. If I start to grapple, I'll probably know it. 
<laughs> no grappling. <laughs> You're laughing at me. <laughs> Good. I'm laughing. No grapple. Well, that's pretty exciting. <laughs> mm. Do you not fear death? Do I not fear death? At the moment, it seems to me that I more fear illness, pain, incompetence, uh, you know, the kind of, of uh, a prelude to death in many cases. And that, I remember a dear, dear friend and colleague from long ago, Harold Clerman. I remember Harold saying, I don't think I'm afraid of death, but I am afraid of being, you know, miserable and in pain. And mm. it, 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 That's probably how I feel about it. <laughs> well, that hasn't happened. Oh, I'm so blessed. Is, yes. May that continue. May my health continue. You really, um, you mentioned something earlier when you were talking about being back in New York and... You said to Adam, I imagine Adam Kirsch or whoever else is booking your life right now. You said, uh, I have scripts to read. <laughs> I have things to do. And I remember uh, earlier this year, I did a podcast with Philip Baker Hall, who's around your age. Yes, yes. We did a little film together. He's lovely. Yeah. You did? Yeah. He had a very similar approach to his day-to-day -day life, which is, yes, I am this old, but no, I'm not stopping anytime soon, and I have a lot more to read and go through. <laughs> yeah. And this is not a question, but this is more of a comment. I hope... <laughs> uh, sorry. This is embarrassing. Uh. Hmm. May you be well. Yeah. <laughs> I hope to be like that. <laughs> this is probably a verse for you. Oh, maybe for you. No, I'm a crier. Are you a crier? Uh, <laughs> Sporadically. Mm, good thing. Mm. In Lady Bird, the best scene in the movie involves you, and it's a monologue you have about love and attention. It's only a few little lines. It's hardly a monologue. But yes, it's a lovely moment. It yeah. has the weight of one. Mm. And you say, essentially, that those things can be or often are synonymous. Do you feel loved? Yes. Do you feel loved? Sometimes. Which I guess is about as much as I can <laughs> ask for. Yes. Your answer is much more uh, positive than mine, and I'm the younger person. Well, that figures, doesn't it? 
<laughs> you think so? See, I've had longer to accumulate love. Is that right? Sure. Yeah. Uh, you felt it for a long time now. I started out feeling it. I think when we began this conversation, I spoke about my good fortune to have a a stable family, which includes a loving family. That is part of stability, isn't it? Mm. I think so. I think so. I mean, you, you can come to it in other ways. I mean, but but that's that's how I began. Mm. Mm. You're not someone who uh, fears death, it seems, and we've had that. There's no grappling. I think I said no <laughs> grapple. You seem to like that line. I guess the last thing I want to ask you is, um, what do you want with the rest of your life, however long that is? Mm-hmm. I guess to be present, connected, loving and loved, healthy, God willing. I hope for that. Lois Smith, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks to everyone who has come on this show, especially those we heard today. Alan Alda and Norman Lear, my father, Lena Waith, Lois Smith, my mom, Sherman Alexi, James Gray, Philip Baker Hall, John Cho, and Chloe Zhao. All these people gave so many life lessons. Um, I think I have taken in a small fraction of the good pieces of advice they offered on here. And uh, I hope... They help some of you, wherever you are listening to this show. Um, Some things I have learned off the top of my head. uh, Always best to get up earlier. Um, uh, (laughs) I thought I'd maybe write some of these down. I don't know. Uh, What goes around doesn't always come around. It's easier to love someone than to stay in love with them. If you think you should apologize for something, just fucking apologize for something. Just do it. You'll feel better. It may not make things right, but it'll be better in the long run. It's not weak to change your mind. It's just human. Anyway, God, what else? Um, Call your parents. Call them as often as you can possibly tolerate. Be kind to yourself, even when it's really easy uh, not to be. And I think I've learned, uh, as many of you probably have found out in the show, it's totally okay to uh, be 
vulnerable and a little silly and sentimental and uh, tearful. You know, just, just not all the time. Some of the time. It's my hope that perhaps in the uh, two years this show has been on that uh, you all have learned something that our guests have said. I know I have. As always, this show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, our associate producer is Elliot Weintraub, and the show is produced by Dylan Peck. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to this strange, very unique episode of Talk Easy. And um, rest in peace to Mac Miller. You're far too young. And uh, we will miss you. Now I'm going to play a happy song of yours. Rest in peace, Mac.
The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Relax and unwind tonight with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy work week flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. 